successful um, European uh, official. Um, the last position uh, was Director General in DG Budget uh, here, here in Brussels. And uh, with the new government, uh, she moved uh, to Madrid uh, to become the Economy and Finance Minister. And so we are absolutely delighted and pleased to have you today uh, with us uh, to talk about um, many issues, Eurozone reform, European uh, agenda going forward. You're just coming out of the ECOFIN, obviously, mm. so a lot of important issues uh, have been discussed there, and I'm sure uh, you will provide us with an inspiring speech. Following your speech, we will um, have a bit of time for a conversation here on the uh, podium with uh, Marine Khan from the Financial Times. Um, and, uh, and of course, uh, we will the floor for questions and comments and remarks uh, from the audience. Everything is on the record, um, live streamed and so on. So if you have a question, please do identify yourself uh, so that we know who's asking the question. But without much further ado, let me thank you again, uh, Minister, Ministra, la Ministra, <laughs> and if I may say so still, Nadia. Um, mm. uh, it's great to have you back here in Brussels and to discuss with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oops. <laughs> Thank you very much, Kuntram, for the invitation. And, and uh, thanks very much to all of you for coming uh, today. It's obviously a pleasure for me to be here in a, in a place I know very well. I've been in Bruegel many times. And, and obviously to be back in Brussels and to have the opportunity to, to share some thoughts with you on what's going on right after the ECOFIN, indeed, as you were, you were mentioning, we've been discussing some, some interesting issues today, so it's a, it's a good moment to, to take stock and to have a, an exchange of views on, on these issues. And I wanted to start with a reflection, which I'm sure many people are familiar so 10 years on, what has changed, what's the situation, and, and I wanted to also start by looking at the many things which have improved. Because many times we start by thinking, oh, this is missing, that is missing. We didn't make 100% uh, you know, of what we wanted to achieve. And that leads us sometimes to forget what we have achieved in these years and how different the situation is today as compared to uh, the way it was 10 years ago. No? In particular, in the area of financial uh, regulation and um, the economic uh, governance that we have. First of all, right now, we have no country in a program. And uh, there has been in, in the last years a significant reduction of debt levels and, and deficit levels in, in most member states. Growth is remaining quite strong in 2018, and the forecast is still quite positive for 2019. I want to highlight this because sometimes we spend so much time talking about the risks and the challenges and that we forget that growth is still above uh, what some consider to be the, the, the long-term a potential growth rate, and therefore we are growing in, in Europe. Spain is growing above uh, that level. We, we are forecasting quite positive growth levels this year, still 2.6% this year, 23 next year. And actually the latest data I got only yesterday on employment, last week on GDP, and today on, on um, expectations in, in the services sector, are quite uh, optimistic and are leading uh, some of our national forecasting uh, institutions to revise upwards the forecast. So, you know, it's some, there are some positive elements around that we should not uh, neglect. And we have an enhanced economic governance inside the EU and in particular inside the, the Eurozone. So it is not the same kind of environment that we, we had. 
there has been very significant deleveraging of the private sector and uh, also a significant filling up of banks' balance sheets. Only last Friday we had the results of the stress tests, which have been roughly positive. Uh, in these two days, we had a number of reports signaling that the capital levels of the banks are stronger and banks are more resilient than last uh, stress test uh, a couple of years ago. So I think we've made a great progress and it's important to acknowledge it and not to, not to lose sight of it. But of course, we need to continue to work on the deepening of the economic and monetary union and in particular, and I know the second pillar, no, the second leg of the fiscal part of the economic and monetary union. We have a monetary union, but we need to build the economic and, and fiscal policy side of it. And we've been these days in particular discussing uh, elements linked to the completion of the banking union and the reinforcement of the role of the ESM uh, within this uh, banking union and within the eurozone and within the EU more uh, broadly. We, uh, in the last weeks, have made very good progress at technical level on the uh, establishment of a backstop to the single resolution fund. This uh, has been a long-standing uh, issue. A lot of discussions have taken place. Um, very good progress has been made. I, I need to emphasize this idea. And we are working with a target of having an agreement by the end of this year. And that uh, is a very good news. We have also made very good progress on the establishment of new proportionary programs inside the ESM. So programs that would be available for <coughs> countries which are not uh, suitable or do not need to access a program as such. So it's a precautionary instrument or tool for uh, countries which are essentially sound from an uh, economic and financial point of view, but may be suffering from an external uh, shock. Um, and that discussion has uh, also evolved very positively in the last weeks. Uh, we've had exchanges these couple of days and we are working on the idea of an <coughs> agreement by the end of the year. We have also discussed the creation of a European deposit or insurance uh, system. This is also a long-standing uh, suggestion by, by Bruegel and other think tanks. And uh, there we have also had a quite open discussion, intense discussion, we have a great opportunity to work and to try <coughs> to have a calendar and a clear uh, target in the, in the coming weeks. And finally, there remains, we haven't discussed it this week, but a lot of work is going on on the issue of fiscal stabilization. Mm. Uh, some talk about the Eurozone budget. Let's, let us just talk about fiscal stabilization. And um, in this area, uh, the, the logic of it is that even if we have a strong governance, even if all countries are virtuous and have a, a relatively uh, healthy uh, public sector, we cannot avoid or totally exclude the emergence of asymmetric shocks that may create turbulence and which may prove or may show that national stabilization mechanisms are not enough, are not sufficient. And therefore, we need to have this, I'll say, a second safety net you know, when we are talking about fiscal stabilization. Because what we, what we have is that financial markets uh, share risk and we want to create a banking union so that those markets are also having a stabilizing effect. But what about the public uh, sector? So we all agree that national fiscal policies are the first line, line of defense, but there is a willingness to work on these um, additional stabilization instruments, and some are talking about investment stabilization. That's the core of the Commission's proposal. As you probably know, we, amongst other member states, 
are proposing to create a common uh, unemployment insurance mechanism. We will have to see uh, how ambitious can we be in the short run or whether to do it in different stages, but we, we want to work along these lines. As I was saying, this has not been discussed in this meeting of the ECOFIN. We will have other uh, chances to, to discuss this. So my reading, uh, and, and uh, before I go to the, to the general assessment, let me emphasize on this last point that from our perspective, and, and coming now as a minister, I was working very much in financial regulation for many years, and then the budget, and then when you get down into the details and the wires, uh, everything is, is, is fascinating and very exciting. But when one gets out of this world, it's very difficult to explain to European citizens what we're doing. You know, it may be surprising to you, but going out and saying, yes, we have a backstop for the single resolution fund, <laughs> doesn't get people excited about Europe, you know? So that's why we are absolutely convinced, that, uh, and there are a number of people around the table that share my view, that it's very good to talk about backstops for the banks, but we need backstops for the people. And in that sense, the unemployment insurance mechanism would be a second safety net, a reinforcing element of the national fiscal stabilizing, automatic stabilizers that, that we have uh, at national level. Yeah? So I want to, to leave this message with you because many times we're working on very technical stuff which are not which is not so uh, attractive and easy to, to explain outside. No? So my assessment uh, is, is relatively positive. You know, I see that we have made progress, that a lot of work has been going on, and that there is an outlook that we may be making more decisive progress also by the end of the year. And that is an important uh, message, I think, to, to, keep, to keep in mind. I was talking about a backstop for the people because um, I think that we need uh, financial stability, definitely. But in the mid to long, long run, we need social stability for the system to be sustainable. And this second angle of social uh, sustainability or social stability is many times also forgotten where we're talking about stability in general. No? Um, legacies from the crisis are still lingering in a number of member states. That is the case in Spain anyway. In the last years, there's been a broadening of inequalities. There are problems which we thought would never come back, like child poverty, which are there. There are poor workers. There are people who cannot afford to make a living with a full-time job. There is a lot of precarity or, how should I say, volatility, instability in uh, the labor market, which doesn't allow people to plan their life and to take investments or to, you know, to, to move ahead and to have a bright future ahead. And that is why uh, I think that it is extremely important that when we're dispas discussing European matters, we talk about uh, governance and institutions, and, but we do not lose sight of the need to, to look at the inequalities and the, and the social pillar. I know President Juncker keeps saying it, and, but it's never enough because uh, then the next day the risk is that we go back to our business and, and continue to do the same kind of, of discussions. So in that uh, context, we think that it is very important that fiscal policy is not only looking uh, at stabilization and macroeconomic impact, it's also looking at fairness. That we have a solid uh, fiscal system on the revenue side too, and solid means also fair, sustainable, acceptable. And that, I wanted to, to put this in context because the other issue that we are discussing a lot these days is the digital tax. Eh? Of course, I think that the, uh, the issue of having a solid uh, fiscal system at, um, at 
international level is even more important in the Eurozone, you know, going home with the idea of having the two pillars and reinforcing the second pillar. But anyway, we have been discussing uh, a lot, and we have been discussing this couple of days on the digital tax. This is an area where a lot of progress also has been made at the technical level. This is a very complex area to make progress in because of the need for unanimity. Uh, it, normally, it's difficult to have a qualified majority for anything, but when we're talking about unanimity, uh, the, the, the obstacles are, of course, more important. Now, the approach of the Spanish government is very much to try to support having an international agreement and a mechanism that can be applied uh, being the OECD G20 framework. We are contributing very actively to that. But if that doesn't happen, then we need a European solution. And if that doesn't arise, we need a, a, a national solution. We are quite persuaded that we cannot continue with a situation where there is an unlevel playing field between digital and non-digital activities. And there is a situation where, uh, due to the, to the taxation systems, our taxation systems are not adjusted to the realities of the 21st century. So we are amongst those countries. We're not the only ones. The UK also has announced that they would be going ahead, and a number of other countries already have their taxes. Uh, you know, the first best would be uh, that we have an agreement uh, in, the, in the coming weeks. We are contributing uh, constructively to that debate. But I think it is important to, to bear in mind the need to find solutions uh, as soon as possible. At least that is our determination at uh, national level. <coughs> so this is, in a nutshell, the state of play of the discussions which are taking place at the European level, in particular regarding the Eurozone governance, which I was invited to talk about. Let me just, before I finish, uh, close with uh, some brief remarks of what are the economic policy priorities of the Spanish government. As we were saying, a new Spanish government, progressive, feminist government, you know, more women than men uh, ministers, and with a, with a very uh, forward-looking agenda in terms of, of economic and social matters. You will not be surprised to see that the, the main elements that I have highlighted as, as issues uh, to strengthen at the European level are also at the heart of what we uh, think are the three main elements of economic policy at national level and that we are pursuing in a, in a decisive, decided manner, no? in a very uh, convinced uh, manner. First element, fiscal consolidation. So we need to have a public sector with healthy finances, we need to have the room for maneuver in the fiscal side. Uh, in the case of Spain, but it's the same in, in many member states, we have high debt to GDP uh, ratios. It's an, we have inherited this from the crisis. We need to uh, try to reduce our deficits and make structural adjustments in order to reduce the debt to GDP ratio. And that is the aim of the <coughs> Spanish government's work, to have a budget, to try to reduce the deficit, to uh, also raise taxes. Um, Spain has a, um, a revenue to GDP ratio, which is uh, many points below the EU average. We're at 38%, whereas the EU average must be around 46%. So there is a significant gap, um, which uh, doesn't mean you have to close the gap, but it just signals that there is room for uh, adjustment in, in that area. A second very important <coughs> pillar is actions and social policies to reduce inequality trying to act on those elements that may provide a, a better safety net for the individuals, for the families, reinforce the stability of the labor market, give people a perspective that society it will, and, and the, the welfare state is going to continue to be preserved and, and strong in the future. And thirdly, 
structural reforms to ensure that growth is sustainable not only in the short run, but also in the mid to long run. And this has to do with social sustainability, I already touched upon, also environmental sustainability. And we think that now is the right moment to undertake these reforms, like now is the right moment to undertake also the reinforcement of the mechanisms and the economic governance we have in the, in the Eurozone in particular. Precisely because the weather is good now, because growth is there, because we have made good progress, because there is room now to make those adjustments. And we uh, want to take advantage of this situation to undertake those reforms. Some have to do with the uh, energy transition, the environmental transition more generally, and, and the fight against an adjustment to uh, climate change. Some have to do with education and vocational training, investment in R&D, digitalization. Uh, there are a number of areas where we want to not only <coughs> act in the short term, but also try to sow the seeds of a brighter future for citizens in Spain and uh, also contribute to a brighter future for citizens uh, in Europe and beyond. And on this uh, positive note, let me close my introductory remarks. Thank you very much. Um, just to uh, my name is Mehreen. I'm a Brussels correspondent who spends most of my day job actually looking at precisely all these issues. So I also ran from the ECOFIN discussion about digital tax. And I've been in Brussels for just over a year. And when I arrived um, on the Eurozone in particular, there was a, a sort of a lot of momentum. And the, and the general feeling was there was a window of opportunity. And the window sort of closes around May 2019, just before then, with the elections happening. And there were a couple of little uh, sort of, not stumbling points, but flashpoints, which was elections in Germany mainly. So once those are out of the way, there is a unique opportunity to use the sort of benign economic environment to really integration. That's not in a crisis phase, but actually where we can sit down and say how to make the structure of EMU more resilient. Um, we're at the closing end of the window, and I think it's undeniable that the sort of reaping of the rewards of whatever will come in maybe December now is not as ambitious as we would have expected a year ago. So I think on the concrete measures, you mentioned the backstop. But on the bigger measures, maybe like the ideas of fiscal stabilization, uh, the ideas of having an unemployment insurance fund, it seems like the old demons of the Eurozone, which is a creditor club, versus a, a potential debtor club have re-emerged. And it seems to have happened in, in smaller, fiscally conservative countries who've used the sort of the Franco-German partnership to actually build up their own diplomatic alliances. And so on that, I would probably say, how do you still, you know, how do you convince countries? Because a lot of them I talk to still don't even see the intellectual need for a Eurozone to have a fiscal stabilization function. They haven't even made that leap to say, yes, this is something that we need, let alone you know, doing an investment one or an unemployment one. And is that debate becoming harder now because we have this latent issue about Italy? And, and also, I'd be interested to think, where does Spain now position itself if we have this, this Hanseatic League, we have the Franco-German engine? Who are your most natural allies in this picture? Because it's becoming a club of you know, member states who rally around certain issues and where would you want to position yourself in, in that sort of puzzle now? There's a lot there, but yeah, yeah, take as you wish. <laughs> no, but thank you very much because that's very much, you know, uh, aligned with what's going on. First on the timeline, my approach in general and, and after many years of dealing with European issues as, as many of you are, I think is ready 
for the moment when there is this political decision that comes, you know, and there is this target now for the end of the year, our political leaders are going to meet. They have given us a mandate, uh, ministers, uh, finance and economic ministers to have to focus on this. What I would not share is the approach of always saying this is less ambitious than what we would have wanted. That's why I did my long introduction, because we keep focusing on what's missing without looking at the progress that we're making. And frankly, it is not realistic to think that you know from one day to the next we're going to have all the, uh, the, the things that are planned and, and expected. We need to work in a decisive and, and, and permanent manner. But I was really impressed, I have to say, yesterday when we had the reports from Daniel Nui and, and uh, Elke Koenig, because this was not a reality some years ago, you know, and now we're having the report. I don't know why the sound has gone up. Well, it's, it's good now. Okay. Uh, the, okay. The, um, it, was, it was impressive to think, and, and Daniel Nui, it was her last uh, participation in the, in the ECOFIN, so the first mandate has finished, you know. And uh, this, is, this is a reality, it is working. So, you know, one has to see the progress that's been made and I think that if we manage to have this agreement by the end of the year, it will be a very good progress. And uh, I do not share the approach of always thinking it is not as ambitious as ideally it would have been. Now, I also want to absolutely avoid this kind of uh, club approach of you're in the north or the south, the east or the west or, you know, I was just uh, clarifying things have to be put into perspective, you know, that there are a number of countries, some of them are not in the Eurozone, they have their own views. Great, you know, great respect. We have our own views. The, the lines are not so clear as people want to picture them. Well, first, if you look at the, the, the countries which are sometimes singing, signing one letter or another letter, you would see the lines are not so clear. And, and frankly, uh, the fact of the matter is that in some issues, for example, we are very close to France, and in some other issues, maybe we are very close to the Netherlands and in others to Germany. Let me give you two examples. One of the strongest advocates for the EDIs for the deposit insurance is the Netherlands. One of the strongest advocates for the unemployment insurance is the German finance minister. So, one should really move away from thinking, oh, north versus south, east versus west, because the lines are much more uh, fortunately, and that allows us to find those converging elements and, and the basis for a consensus. I think that the fact that France and Germany are, have an engine and are pushing uh, and, and bringing the debates to the table is excellent. I think this is very good news. We work very closely with both of them and I think it's very good. And I think that Spain right now is playing a very important role in that sense because we are also complementing that core, if you wish, that wants to bring forward the debates and to, wants to make progress. So, you know, I think that uh, I, I don't feel like I want to be closer to this or that, but rather I want to be at the heart, and that's where we are. Well, well perhaps I, I let me let me pick up on on one of the last points. I, I think it's fair to say that um, probably both Marine and I are in the camp of those that have to worry about the glass being only half full, while while uh, um, uh, half empty. We, we worry about the glass being half empty, while you. Uh, uh, rightly bury and emphasize that it's already half full and, and perhaps it's in the, in the end um, uh, a fruitful way of, of having that exchange and that discussion to, to move the agenda forward. But it seems to me that um, 
I do share uh, some of the worries um, that, uh, that Maureen uh, mentioned. I mean, one is uh, certainly the issue of um, uh, the, the banking, the banking union and capital markets union project, which is very technical. I entirely agree with you on that one, um, and is very difficult to uh, tell to citizens. And I think that's why also this whole discussion on unemployment insurance is so important, as you say, backstop to the people. I mean, this is something where Europe would become perhaps more visible. But, uh, but I think in the, in the area of, um, of financial, we, we haven't made as much progress, uh, certainly as we would have liked. I mean, we have made progress in terms of the supervision. We have made progress in terms of uh, increasing the buffers in the banks and so on and so forth. But uh, when push comes to shelf, we are still basically stuck in a system where liquidity provisioning and resolution is very unclear. Um, the backstop to resolution is not yet agreed. The ESM treaty reform that would be needed for that is not agreed. And I, I think it's not at all that certain that, that we will achieve it. So um, uh, you might have seen the recent report of the German Court of Audit. Uh, uh, changing um, the ESM in, into that direction. And if you look on the ground, the banks have become actually more national. They are not national, they have retrenched behind borders. We have less risk sharing through the banks now than, than we used to have um, uh, ten, 10 years ago across borders. So, so I, guess, I guess, yes, I, I agree with you. We have done a lot in the last 10 years, but the risks are still very substantial. And if something serious was to happen, I'm not quite sure um, how quickly we will be uh, in acting and how strong the political support will be for acting. I mean, the political consensus supporting all of, uh, all of these moves seems to be rather weaker than, than stronger um, and uh, rather weaker than it used to be. But perhaps I'm misreading the politics, so I hope you can convince us that uh, perhaps uh, the glass is well, I mean, the political situation is obviously challenging. I'm, I think that the governance is clearly improved, and we have instruments and mechanisms which are relatively automatic, which we didn't have. And that is making a very big difference. And the second positive element, but I don't want to repeat what I said before, is that the financial sector has done a lot of cleanup and deleveraging, you know, so that. Uh, of course, nobody, uh, nobody can say there's no risk. I'm just saying one has to also appreciate what is there and continue to work to make progress on the other files. That is our determination. Maybe I, I might bring up a more, a less tec a technical point, but you mentioned it in, in how much of this really penetrates into domestic debate the citizens are having about the future of their economy, the future of their national governments. So as a national finance minister, you will see that in Spain, uh, the papers who report on economic topics report on the Spanish budget, the Spanish fiscal situation, but uh, the Eurogroup will probably get into the Spanish papers when there's a Spanish element about what the Eurogroup might, discuss, might be discussing. And a sort of, you know, having followed this debate uh, for the last 12 months, and the question has come up of, you know, uh, is, is the Eurozone and the way it functions a sort of democracy-free zone? 
And I think it's an issue that has sort of waned a little bit and probably was at its height during the Greek crisis that the Eurogroup meets, you know, sort of secretively. Well, it's, 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 a, it's a closed council formation. There are no real minutes, uh, as, you know, a certain Greek minister tried to expose very quickly in, in his book. But so we're not, we're talking about reforms which have to be done. But in the process of how they're done, we're not talking about things like treaty change yet because there's always been a political reticence to really go that far because it's, you know, every time it happens, most of the times if the EU wants to have a referendum on something, it, it inevitably loses. And so we don't want to have that. How do you make integrating EMU, taking leaps forward in the single currency, an actual process which is more democratic than it is right now. So it's not about changing, tweaking secondary laws, getting the ESM treaty changed by various parliamentary methods, but really engaging citizens in this. And you know, as a centre-left, as somebody who's a, a, a member of a centre-left government, this is probably a traditional sort of call that <laughs> others like Pierre Moscovici have mentioned in the past, but it seems to have disappeared a little bit. And, and is that something we need to have back in the conversation because we have elections coming up? Well, two remarks. First, on the issue of how economic, uh, well, European economic discussions are perceived at the national level. There are a number of journalists I saw coming in from the Spanish media, so mm -hmm. you can also ask them, you know, how, how to make this more attractive or more interesting, because uh, I have realized exactly what you were saying, which is that despite the fact that we're having this very fascinating discussions here, that doesn't permeate to the citizenship on the ground. And uh, frankly, for part of it, it's impossible because it is so complicated and so technical. And, and, and also we use this jargon, but this is not co exclusive to, but you know, full of, of expressions in jargon, which is difficult to, to translate. But there are a couple of issues here that people understand, at least in my country, but I bet in everybody else's. One is deposit insurance and the other one is unemployment insurance. These are two things that people would understand that Europe is providing. This is a safety net for the people, not only for the institutions. That's why we think that these two elements of the agenda need to be uh, put there. Now, the other uh, question that you're posing on, on the democratic accountability, I uh, have always thought that actually the European uh, framework is much more uh, democratically accountable than maybe we, we tend to argue or some say, you know. Uh, first of all, the national governments are national governments, and so and that's that those are the people that meet in the council, so these are not, um, you know, robots that are passing through the street. There is a, a clear accountability, and actually when we have our discussions, many people say, I have to go to Congress, I have gone to Congress, I have to explain this. So, uh, obviously, the European Commission is also uh, accountable, and there is a parliament in terms of legislation, I don't have the feeling that there is a lack of uh, accountability or that we cannot uh, actually make the system stronger within the current uh, legal framework. Can I perhaps ask you a bit on the social discussion um, which you emphasize, which, and, uh, which certainly is a huge issue in Spain, but many other countries, income inequality levels are high. You mentioned child poverty um, as, a, as a key key source of worry. And then you sort of gave both a European and a national response. So the national response, if I understand correctly, you mentioned that the revenue to GDP ratio is rather low, so there's some room for perhaps tax increases. Um, perhaps you want to comment on that. 
Um, but you certainly mentioned you know, national measures to address inequality, which I think is the natural thing to do in Europe, right? I mean, our welfare system is basically at the national level. Now, then there is this new discourse, a social Europe, social pillar, doing it at the European level, um, uh, achieving uh, more equality and so on. But it sounds as if this discourse is, is quite empty in many respects, because I mean, even if we were to introduce an unemployment reinsurance, which is still, I think, I mean, big if, right? But suppose we were. It is an unemployment reinsurance. It would be after the national insurances. So at the end of the day, I mean, the welfare state, the social equality mechanisms, they are all national. I mean, predominantly national. As a national minister, you know that better than I do, of course. So, so aren't you worried a little bit that this discussion at the European level about social Europe gets out of hand and promises too much compared to what it can deliver in the end? First of all, uh, dealing with social matters, you said it, it has to be done at national level because it's where the government is close to the citizens. And secondly, because it needs to reflect the political and democratic priorities of the different countries. So uh, there are some countries who would like to have a specific safety net and others a different one or a different tax level. So from this point of view, I think that first of all, we need to act at national level. In the, in the case of Spain, uh, the situation we have is that we have a, a public deficit which has been going down. But in the last years, it's been mainly thanks to the automatic stabilizers. I mean, the very high growth that has um, benefited the country and very good. But we think that going forward, it's important to have some structural adjustment because otherwise when growth is not going to be so strong in many years time, um, uh, obviously the system will be weaker. And that's why we are proposing to uh, reinforce the revenue side of the, of the budget, moderate expenditure, of course, and have better expenditure, but also look at the revenue side. And in that sense, not so much raise taxes, but also make them fairer. So for example, having a minimum a tax rate for the uh, corporate tax for large companies, but bring down the one for SMEs, for example. Increase the revenue uh, rate for the highest uh, incomes. Um, so the, this kind of approach. And, uh, and I think that that will con contribute definitely the digital tax, uh, financial transaction tax, to make people feel that the system is fairer, no? more progressive and apart from establishing a more solid base of revenues uh, going forward. Um, but the, the determination I think is, is important that the, why am I saying this? Why? Because for many years, many people have said that you can only, uh, fiscal discipline means reducing taxes and, and our approach is that fiscal discipline, when you have a deficit, may require in specific circumstances adjustments on the revenue side. Then on the, uh, at the Europe and, and on the expenditure side, obviously also looking at, and the, and the regulatory side, looking at issues like raising the minimum wage like uh, looking at family benefits, and which are particularly low in Spain. We are amongst, I mean, I, th I think we are second to the, to the last in terms of family support and social policies uh, from the OECD. So uh, investing and looking at areas where there can be a very targeted action that can have an impact in, in reducing inequalities and, and of course, uh, the labor market. 
Then uh, when you're talking about the European level, well, the, it becomes more challenging automatically, even conceptually, you know, as I said, the European institutions are further from the people and you don't have the same kind of instruments. You don't have fiscal policy, you, don't, you cannot regulate these kind of issues. So the progress is necessarily, or the, uh, the impact is necessarily more muted and therefore it's more difficult to show that impact. Do I think that there is no room for Europe to, no, I do think that there is room. And going forward, we need to make progress on these areas. Why? Because if we have free movement of people and free movement of workers, for example, if we don't advance or if we don't make progress towards a, a more harmonized or a more coherent uh, social framework, that is going to uh, give rise to tensions. Actually, it does already give rise to tension. So, so there is a role to play and it's complementary. I don't think that it will never totally replace the, the national role. Perhaps we should um, take, a, take a few questions and comments and remarks um, from, from the audience. The lady here is there. Is there a mic? Um, um, so we get the mics here. The, the lady here for here in the front. Thank you very much. I'm Natasha Arvanetti from the European Committee of the Regions. Uh, thank you for your views. Very interesting. And um, I have three things to ask you. Uh, but quick, <laughs> please quick, short and quick. Uh, well, actually, the first is that uh, your personal views on the Hanseatic statement about the ESM reform. Uh, the second is, do you think that the move to qualified majority vote is an improvement for the decision making in the uh, Eurogroup? And the third question is that um, in a hypothetical situation, where your country's interests, because now you're a minister, are the opposite of what the uh, European Commission is advocating. How would you deal with that? <laughs> thank you. We collect a few, if you yes, don't mind. Yes, thank you. So, so the gentleman there in the back, yes. Then the lady here. The, the Good afternoon. Um, Johan Barros from Accountancy Europe. I think my question actually relates a bit to the question uh, just asked now by the, uh, by the lady. Um, President Juncker has said that in uh, January <laughs> or February next year, he will be publishing a supposedly a communication um, proposing to move to qualified majority voting on taxation, certain tax areas. Will Spain support such a move um, away from tax sovereignty towards qualified majority voting on tax? Thank you very much. The lady all the way in the back. Well, I'm the former General Secretary of the European Trade Union Confederation. Uh, thank you very much for your intervention. I must say it's uh, refreshing to hear some of the things you have said. But I would like to pick up on the idea that citizens need some positive development on social issues uh, in Europe. And I would like to ask you if uh, <clears throat> you would be prepared to consider the idea of a European minimum wage, not a set amount. I am very clear that you cannot have a set amount for all the countries in Europe, but the country trying to reach a certain level compared to the median wage or something that would have to be agreed of the minimum wage, and we are very far uh, from that. I'm saying that because one of the negative views about Europe comes from the fact that 
people see uh, downward competition between uh, citizens in the various countries. So it could be at least a, a positive sign uh, from Europe that uh, we are trying to do something about it. Thanks. Do you want to say those yes, three? Maybe yes, I can yeah. reply. Um, maybe on the, on the first question, I would rather not react to somebody else's in particular. We're talking about very small countries with very small weight. The approach of Spain is much more of support for uh, the, the proposals and making as much progress as possible and we have expressed that very clearly and, and I think we're playing a very constructive role in trying to reach this agreement. So you, you, um, I'd rather not position myself vis-a-vis -vis somebody else but rather just explain uh, our views. Uh, on qualified majority voting in the Eurogroup or in general I think that that allows decisions to be taken faster but one should not fool, we should not fool ourselves. I mean, some decisions will always require unanimity. And uh, actually on the, on the uh, taxation uh, issue, I would rather keep my, <laughs> my ink dry for the moment and reflect a bit before uh, reacting. It's a quite delicate area. I haven't re reflected so much on it. Um, what would I do? I don't have any problem uh, in that regard. I have already expressed views which are maybe not totally aligned with those of the Commission. As I keep saying, the fact that you have European institutions that disagree is the way Europe is supposed to work, you know, and you defend Europe by being in the Commission or being in the Council or being in the Parliament or being at home. You know, you can work for the project with the same loyalty by disagreeing. Yeah? That's, that's what the system is supposed to, to work like. No? And uh, on, the, on the issue of the minimum wage, I don't know if I would say Europe has to impose it. I think it would be desirable that all countries have uh, a minimum wage. And uh, like, as I was saying, I think it's desirable to have an unemployment uh, protection mechanism. But uh, I don't know whether that should be imposed uh, from the center or rather, you know, we need to just, it's a good thing to have, I would say. Let me add on the minimum wage. Um, I, I think the uh, community of economic uh, experts and academics uh, would do well by revising a bit um, the effects of minimum wages um, on employment. I mean, there has been so much panicking about the effect of minimum wages in Germany, elsewhere, on the effect on the labor market. And it seems that not much has actually happened in terms of employment. Uh, at least uh, when eyeballing the data. And so I, th I think it's certainly a topic where I think economic researchers uh, could do uh, a good job in sort of reassessing whether their recommendations um, not to introduce the minimum wage were actually right or not. But that's just a side comment on the, on the economic profession and the debate. Uh, so I, I see the gentleman there, then Maria. Jean-Victor Louis, professeur honoraire à l'ULB, euh, former euh, chef du service juridique de la Banque Nationale de Belgique. <coughs> I would like to have an institutional question, if you allow so. Um, I think that uh, the, the way decisions are taken for the moment are uh, complicated as never they have been before. They are uh, the leaders, they are the Euro Area Council, they are the Euro 27, Euro 28, and uh, many of the, this um, meeting of uh, the leaders, the summits, 
are concluded without a clear view of what they have decided. Uh, the idea is uh, to uh, register only uh, what, uh, on what uh, everybody is, is agreed. Uh, and uh, at each uh, summit, uh, like in uh, June, in October, uh, we report a decision uh, for, uh, for EDIS, for example. Uh, and uh, there is a, a completely lack of transparency of uh, what happens. I, I must say that uh, Mr. Centeno uh, is perhaps an exception because uh, he, uh, this famous letter to the President of the European Council was very detailed and we have what was the position at that moment, but it's already a, a, an old document because uh, it, it, the, many times uh, the, the, the President of the European Council himself say we, we sh should go uh, faster. That, that we, we see, it, we should go faster, but the result is not there. And it seems that there is an urgency, there are the elections, and there are uh, other uh, uh, challenges. Thank you. Thank you. from Bruegel. Thank you, Minister, for a very, uh, a very refreshing uh, approach, actually, to uh, the economics of monetary union. I wanted to uh, bring back your concern about the engagement of the citizens and perhaps uh, uh, continue Marin's comment on the democracy and accountability. And, and I would, I'd like to ask you what your views are on the following. Um, every time that you take a decision in your capacity as a minister to bring a decision at the central level, to centralize a decision, be it the backstop that is going to come hopefully in December, you necessarily reduce the sovereignty of the countries. So my question is, how uh, aware do you think the citizens are that there is that trade-off? And more importantly, how far do you think the citizens are prepared to continue that process? Thank you. Then there was, I think, the gentleman here. Oh, can we collect two more then? Yes, yeah. and then we wrap up. Thank yeah. You. Thank you. I'm Daniel Perez with Commerzbank. Um, thank you. I would like to, um, I wanted to ask you if you could elaborate a little bit more on the discussion um, in the council with regards to EDIS, because um, it's no secret that the German government and other, let's say, northern countries were quite opposed until now, and uh, especially when it comes to the, the, the third phase, the, the full insurance. So um, I was wondering if you see any chance in the next few months to, uh, to get at least to the first phase, to the, to the liquidity, to liquidity guarantee. When there? Mm -hmm. It works. It works. Uh, David Clayton from uh, Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, midterm elections are going on today, but uh, I voted two weeks ago, so I did my democratic duty. Uh, our economy is booming. Uh, we still also have job mismatches between skill levels, though. Uh, we find uh, a vast majority of low-skilled people who are unable to support families with full-time employment, so we know what that is like. Uh, we know it's the duty and responsibility of government to provide opportunities for people to have training and education to raise their skill levels. But we're having a debate about whose responsibility is to take advantage of that opportunity. If you don't take advantage of the opportunity, are you trapped uh, within the low productivity sector, which is not going to grow very rapidly? Are you missing out on the opportunity to raise your skill level, 
where opportunities are much, much more uh, rosy these days. Last question there. Jack Schickler from Law360. Um, ECOFIN uh, appeared to uh, kick the digital tax into the long grass in its discussions today, or at least at European level. Um, if Spain is going to go ahead at national level, are you worried about a loss of competitiveness from digital businesses operating in your country um, or uh, retaliation from the US who have threatened to retaliate against UK proposals? Um, and I wondered if you'd had any conversations um, with Washington on that. I take one last because uh, I think we missed we missed you, and then we have we have to close. And I'm sorry I can't take everybody. So so please. Thank you so much for being here, uh, Mrs. Minister. Um, so I mean there will be. So you hear it now, better. It's Cecilia Bonefeld. I'm from Digital Europe, the DGF Digital Europe. Um, we see an increasing tension between uh, the value creation in the world, um, government against, uh, I would say against, or we'd see the value creation is becoming more and more global, but the, the rules are made on, on, on national level. We see that some of the biggest companies have grown you know, 450% over the last 10 years per year. Uh, we know that two-thirds of the SMEs actually leave Europe in the two-thirds uh, growth phases because it's too cumbersome to do business in Spain and France. Is they have to go to an unfragmented market. Can we actually afford to um, stay in our governments and uh, have separate rules and have a fragmented financial market? And how long can we do that? And how long can we say, okay, it's okay to have governments with different profit tax rate for companies and, and different taxation and protection rule for citizens? I mean, is there a time when, when governments have to say, well, we need to go on EU level to get scale, to be competitive, and to follow the world of value creation? And how do you look at that uh, problem? Thank you. Thank you. Well, many, many uh, questions. On the, on the transparency generally, and, and I was talking about accountability, I must say that there is huge transparency on, on the discussions which are going on in the sense that there's a press briefing before, there's a press briefing afterwards, documents are published. Maybe, you know, it's never enough, I would say, but I don't think uh, that I would describe what's the discussions as, as in closed uh, rooms. And some discussions necessarily need to take place in, in a room where nobody's watching or else we wouldn't be uh, able to, to speak in, in frank terms. So I am usually quite impressed by the volume of, of information that, that we are constantly producing. And, and in Europe, I think it is uh, quite, quite uh, that the question about engagement of citizens is very good because I think that they will citizens will support uh, the European project insofar as they see that that's beneficial to them. Now, the situation in Spain is quite extraordinary because it's almost unanimous, everybody's pro-European, because Europe has brought to Spain so many good things. To start with, democracy and normalization and growth and convergence and uh, you know, becoming a, a totally different society. When one looks back, uh, the change has been remarkable. So. I must say I feel privileged to live in a country where there is no anti-European force or, or debate. No? We still, I think, are seeing the benefits even through the crisis. And, uh, but generally, I think people have to be uh, explained 
how their life would, would change. You know, maybe we will have a real life experiment soon. Let's see, I wish, I wish we didn't have to see the negative to, to realize uh, the positive because I do see a trend and, and the Eurobarometer is showing that actually in the last year there is more support for the European project. So it's this kind of situation where probably you're aware of it when you lose it more than... Uh, now, on the, on the deposit insurance, it is a, you, you uh, are touching upon the right point, which is, uh, as I was saying before, people understand deposit insurance for the good and the wrong Im uh, implications, no? mm -hmm. with, the, with the positive and the negative implications. It means that some parts of the European population are made to believe you're going to be subsidizing depositors somewhere else, and who knows, no? and, and that is, a, is, is an issue that needs to be addressed. And in some other countries, it's how can we have centralized supervision and resolution and not have the impact at European level, continue to bear the, the, the cost uh, uh, in the national depositors. No? But the two positions are correct. I think you, you have to explain, to work on it, but it shows that this is a necessarily more complicated political issue than maybe others, which may mean the same session of sovereignty, but are not as close to the citizen. So that's why I, I think, uh, you know, insofar as we're making progress and we reach agreements on the most mature and then move on to the next stage, we are on the right track. Um, maybe a, a, a more general uh, reflection on, on competitiveness and on, on do we fear the loss of competitiveness or, I mean, in the case of the digital companies, we're talking about firms that, as, as you said, I don't remember who was posing the question, they're growing by 20 and 30% per year. The European market is obviously very interesting. These are very profitable companies. There is a, a, an advantage and a value added of having these uh, clients in Europe. I, you know, I think that it is, um, as I was saying, it's a matter of, of fairness, but it's also a matter of a level playing field between those companies and others that are in a similar situation and, and do pay different taxes. So um, this is an area like many others where definitely it would be logical to move to the European level, but it is also an area where we, we will have to make progress, uh, you know, in so far as we can or as far as we can at the level that we can. I am a very pragmatic person in the sense of saying, you know, work towards the best, uh, you, you have realized it already, I think. <laughs> but do not neglect the progress that you are making and that you're able to, to make in reality, you know. And I think that's a good advice when one wants to um, make progress and to assess uh, the, what's going on in, in the European uh, sphere. Maybe I can, I, make, I can make one comment, because it hasn't come up in the questions, but just as we part, something that could bring together democracy point and the sort of the point about if there is a remorseless logic in, in the monetary union, which means the centre-left governments can't really do what they would like. And I think the litmus test now is Italy, which is not a traditional centre-left government, but wants to do things that it thinks will address social inequality. It will address sort of structural problems in, in, in its economy, which has been going on for a long time. And it looks like they are coming up against... A rules-based institution which tells them that according to their numbers they can't do it and it's these are sort of inevitable clashes that seem to be brought up maybe first in Greece and now another one that we're facing and I think uh, regrettably that dynamic will be that those citizens who are engaged about what they want to change in their economy will look at the EU as a hostile force and not something that is going to accommodate their will to try and rejuvenate certain parts of you know 
their labor market, their pensioners, their young people. So but then I, I need to run, but I don't want to leave you with this message without reacting. I don't want to comment on any other country's uh, approach to the issues. Our approach is very clearly one of fiscal discipline, not because it's imposed by the European rules, also because of that, but more importantly because of a conviction that that is needed if you want to have uh, financial stability. So that is a, an absolute must for us, but we need to also look for the space to uh, do, uh, to have a progressive approach and to, uh, to conduct these social policies. I think that uh, we, we are absolutely convinced that you can have the two, financial stability and social stability, and I personally think that's the right way forward. Okay, so please join me in thanking the minister and uh, Maria.